0: Well, it brings me great delight this morning to begin our study in the book of Ruth, uh, one of only two books in the Bible named after women. If you would turn to uh, the book of Ruth, way back in the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, I'm going to be reading the first five verses out of this chapter. Ruth chapter 1. Verses 1 to 5. Follow along as I read. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, I am so excited to be studying through this book, an amazing book written about your faithfulness. And even in the darkest of times, we'll find here that you're at work, that you have a sovereign purpose, that you have a goal in mind and you're working toward that and and your work never fails to bring about your good and sovereign purpose. So I pray this morning as we begin into this rich study through the book of Ruth, that you would just encourage our hearts. You would cause us to have this high and wonderful picture of you and who you are and how you rule. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just mentioning the book of Ruth, if you've ever read through this book, it draws smiles from a lot of people. You have here the character of Ruth, and if, if you're familiar with it, you'll know her famous words where she said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And when you hear those words, you think of this, of this lady who was so committed that she gave all, and it kind of inspires us. And then you read of a man of integrity, a guy named Boaz, a guy who comes along, he's sort of the knight in shining armor, if you will, of this story, and he loves what in some ways is the unlovable, a woman who's widowed and has nothing to offer, and he he loves her and he takes her into his own home, he marries that young widow as part of the story. And in this story, you have both tragedy, which we just read about in these first five verses. You have tragedy, uh, you have romance, kind of racy romance at one point in the story, we'll find. Uh, And the story ends with a newborn baby. A baby whose lineage will produce not only the greatest king of the nation of Israel, King David, but will produce the greatest king who has ever lived on the face of the earth our Lord and Savior, the King Jesus Christ, all come from this story of Ruth. And so it's a love story. A kind of yanks at our heartstrings, and, and we love it for that. But there's a lot more to this story than just romance and babies and knights in shining armor. The book of Ruth will teach us that our actions have consequences. We live in a real world And we make real decisions that have real consequences. However, we don't live in a vacuum. There's another power that's at work here. It's not like we live in a computer world where we plug in this equation and this equation and we're guaranteed to get this result. No, what we find in this book is that there's another factor here. And that other factor is the grace of God... That directs those decisions as we plug them in. And that causes those decisions to work exactly how he wants them to work. So that the outcome brings about his good and sovereign purposes. Even when we make bad decisions. That's what we'll find in this book. The uh, The book of Ruth is a story that shows us that God moves in mysterious ways. There's a hymn out there, and it says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And what this story is going to show us, uh, this story is going to be for people who wonder where God is when there's no prophet, when there's no voice leading. This book is for people who wonder where God is when tragedy after tragedy seems to attack their faith. And then begin to wonder, is God even out there? Does God even exist? This book is a book for people who wonder if living a life of integrity is even worth it. Is there even a reward? Is there even a sense in continuing to live a life of faithfulness? And this book of Ruth is also a story for those who can't imagine that anything great would come out of an ordinary life of faith. And yet we see in this book the most wonderful and extraordinary things that come out of a life of faith, all contained here in the book of Ruth. So it is a book of encouragement. It's a book of refreshment. Why? Because it shows us that God is at work in the darkest of times. When you think that God is the furthest from you, and all you can see is that one thing, that one obstacle, or that one decision that has to be made right in front of you, Rest assured that this book is going to show us that God is doing a million things in the background to bring about his purpose so that when you make that decision, it's right in line with where he wants to go and where he's taking you. And he's going to guide it. and He's going to direct it. So I'm very excited as we begin this study in this book of Ruth. Ruth is a story about one family in the midst of a thousand families in the nation of Israel what we're going to do is we're going to take, we're going to step back from this big picture of the nation of Israel and we're going to zoom in on this little family of four. And we're going to watch what God is doing. God is going to do in a microcosm what he's doing out here on a macro level. Big picture out here, but you're also going to see it in the day-to-day decisions, in the day-to-day lives of ordinary followers of God in this book of Ruth. Now the author of the book, gives us some background. You can, look, you can see it right there in, in verse 1. Check it out. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, if, if you leave your finger there and you turn back one page in your Bible, you'll see that you land in the book of Judges. The days when the judges ruled was a period of about 400 years when the children of Israel would rebel against God God would send in this enemy nation to kind of take over, at least attack the nation of Israel. And in the midst of that enemy attack, God would raise up a judge. And the judge was really more of a military might than anything else. But the judge would be raised up. He would defeat the enemy. He would bring about a certain amount of peace and rest for the nation of Israel again. And then he would rule for a while. Over and over throughout the book of Judges, you see this pattern, this cycle continue. The very first judge, his name is Othniel, that is raised up in the book of Judges, he was a squeaky clean kind of hero. But even the judges, as you read through that book, over time, become less and less of the character that you would expect of a man of God. The last judge that we're told about in the book of Judges is a judge named Samson. You guys know his story. And Samson undermines every expectation we would have of a judge. And he ends up committing suicide in one sense by pushing down the pillars and bringing the temple down on him. He was a judge, um, but it wasn't nearly what we would expect of the judges that ruled. In the days of the judges, there was no authority There was no king. There was no one to impose on the people how they should live. It wasn't as though they didn't have the Bible. They had the books of Moses, they had the law, they could have followed that. The problem was there was no one paying any attention uh, to the Word of God. It was a time of self rule. It was a time of self-confidence. It was a time when the Lord said to do one thing and the people would do another. This was the period of the judges. Every person claimed to live however he wanted to live. Whatever God had to say was really of peripheral importance. It didn't matter. It was out there on the fringe. And if you're in the book of Judges, one page over, if you look at the very last verse of the book of Judges, It kind of sums up, if you will, the attitude of the people at that time. Look at the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that verse sets the stage for what we're getting ready to see in the opening verses of Ruth. It was the time of the judges Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no authority. No one saying this is what's right and this is what's wrong. So go back now to the book of Ruth and look again at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now it shouldn't be a shock that we find a land plagued with famine. Why not? Because that's what God said he would do if the people of Israel disobeyed. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, it says this. God told them, he promised them, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The book of Leviticus goes on to say, if you disobey me then the hard hand of God will be against you and the sign of that judgment is there'll be a famine in the land. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to the opening book of Ruth, there's a famine. It's the days of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were disobeying God. So, rightly so, here's the famine. Now this isn't the only time In the Old Testament, when we see the reality of a physical discipline against the nation of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 8, here's what happens there. Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine. The Lord had called for it. The Lord called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. In Isaiah 3. We read this, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. This is God's pattern. You obey, I'll give you plenty in your land. But if the children of Israel disobeyed, the reality was a famine. Again, in Amos chapter 4, the prophet says, I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That means, guess what? There's not going to be any food stuck on your teeth. You're not going to have any. you have clean teeth and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. A famine in the land was God's wake-up call to the children of Israel. It was a call for repentance. It was a call to say, what you're doing is wrong, and if you'll come back to me, then I'll give you the physical reality of blessing to show you that you're in harmony with, with my commandments. So here we are in Ruth chapter 1 in the days when the judges ruled and there's a famine in the land. Why? Because everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes and no one was following after God. It was a hard time. It was a hard time to exist. It was a hard time to even stay alive. So look what the author says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and then his two sons, Malon and Kilion. Again, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab And they remained there. Here's one man, family of four in the nation of Israel. He's there, he looks around, there's famine in the land. He has nothing to provide for his family. There's no food. Ironically, he lives in Bethlehem. The meaning of the word Bethlehem is the house of food. (laughs) Bethlehem isn't producing any food right now. Because they're being disobedient. So here stands Elimelech, and he faces a decision. What do I do? We need food. We're hungry. There's nothing here. And here's his wife, Naomi, and here's his two sons. And by the way, his two sons are sickly little boys. How do we know that? Well, their names mean that. Malon means sickly or diseased. Now, it could be that he wasn't getting the proper nutrition. We don't know. Or it could be that he was born and he was just sickly. But here's Malon, and he's a sick kid. And along comes his brother Kilion. And guess what Kilion means? It means weakness or wasting away. So here you have Elimelech. He's trying to decide what do we do. We can stay here in Bethlehem. We can try to push through. Or should we go to another place, somewhere where we can find food, somewhere where there's some type of nourishment? And no doubt his kids are crying in the background. Dad, is there anything to eat? We're hungry. We don't feel good. We're sick. Is there something? Help us. Don't we have something in this house that's good to eat? And his wife, no doubt, is asking him, Elimelech, what are we going to do? I don't have anything left for the kids. I'm already giving up my meals so they can eat. Tell me, Elimelech, what are we going to do? So Elimelech is facing this decision. What happens if there's no more rain for another year? Can we survive? Can we make it that long? Finally, there came a time when in Elimelech's judgment, something had to change. A decision had to be made. Now, Elimelech's name means my God is king. And yet, there was no God in Elimelech's life. There was no king in Elimelech's life. And therefore, Like so many others in the days of the judges, Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes and he picked up his family and he moved them to Moab. When Elimelech should have repented for not upholding the righteous law of God, when Elimelech should have gathered his wife and children and said, no matter what anybody else in this country does, we're going to serve God. When Elimelech should have called on his neighbors to do the same thing and repent and come under the righteous rule of God, when Elimelech should have trusted God, that God could take care of a righteous man, just like he did Noah in the days before, when Elimelech should have done all of those things, He packed up his bags, took his wife, he took his two sons, and they sojourned to the country of Moab. Whatever the instinct for survival was in Elimelech, whatever the economic factors that went into that decision may have promised him, Elimelech's decision, by all biblical standards, was a wrong decision. It was a bad response to a bad situation. Now, how can I say this? Why would I knock this guy for trying to feed his family? Because God had forbidden his people to live among the pagan nations. God had told his people, you are to stay here in the promised land. The other people, they worship their Baals and they have their pagan gods. They have their idol poles. They have their practices. They don't obey the Yahweh of Israel. And the danger of going into those pagan nations is if you play with fire, you will get what? Burned. And God was trying to protect them. The risk of falling into pagan worship was too great to go into those nations. The country that Elimelech picked was the country of Moab. Now if you go back and you study in the Old Testament, the country of Moab came to existence because it was conceived in incest. Do you remember the story of Lot? Lot was in the city of Sodom. The angels came and told him he needed to go. The city was going to get destroyed. Well, they escaped out of the city, ran across the plains. His wife looked back. She was turned into a pillar of salt. And so Lot escaped. He escaped judgment. He went into hiding into a cave. He had two daughters and no sons. Now his daughters came up with this plan and they said, you know, if we're going to continue the lineage of our father, we're going to have to give him sons. And so the two daughters came up with this wicked plan really to get their father drunk and then they would go in and they would sleep with him in order to get pregnant. It happened just as they planned. And the oldest daughter, when she became pregnant, she gave birth to a son and she named him Moab. Moab means from father. Okay? So the very nation of Moab, from its very existence, was conceived in incest. And all throughout the the nation of Moab as they came to, to grow and extend, they never once followed the sovereign and holy God. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three, God gave a command about the Moabs. He said, The Moabites, he said this, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Even into the tenth generation, none of them may enter into the assembly of the Lord forever. And so maybe you might be thinking, well, God, that's a harsh law to tell Elimelech that he can't even go into this country um, when, when his family is starving. But God is looking at it from the big picture and saying, if you go into this pagan nation of people who do not follow me, you run the risk of falling into their practices. And God also said, if you will obey me, even as individuals, I'll bless you. I want you to stay in the promised land. God had the best interests of his people in mind. That's why he told them to stay put. So God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem. He had no business leaving and heading into this place. The man who bore the name My God is king, acted as though he had no king. And off he went into this forbidden land. Now before we go any further, let me ask you this. If you're a believer this morning, you bear a name too. You bear the name Christian. How many times do you and I face decisions when Christ of Christian doesn't affect or doesn't come into play in the decision that we make. How many times do we face a decision and we say, wow, the grass looks greener over there. And never once do we stop and say, you know what, as Christian, the meaning of my name means I follow Christ. Christ, what do you think about this decision? Will this glorify you? Will this bring about what you desire in my life? See, you and I... Are a lot like Elimelech. We face those same kind of decisions. Sometimes our name comes into play, and sometimes we ignore that. Elimelech made a devastating decision. Look at verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, dies, leaving behind a widow and two boys. No explanation is given in this verse for why he died. But we know that the name Elimelech is never mentioned once again on the pages of Scripture. It's as though his existence went out of being when he died. And the focus of the story here in verse 3 turns to Naomi. Notice even how it's written. Notice how this verse is phrased. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Okay. The focus is now looking at Naomi. It's saying, here's where the story is going to continue. Here's where the narrator picks up and says, we're going to watch what happens to this woman, Naomi, now. What is she going to do? Because guess what? Naomi has a decision now to make, doesn't she? Because Naomi can either repent for what their family has done, and she can go back home to Bethlehem, or she can stay put where they are. Sadly, the land of compromise holds out more promise for Naomi than the promise of God back in Bethlehem. And so she stays. I'm sure she grieved. I'm sure she was sad that her husband died. But she had her sons. And as long as she had her sons, there's a glimmer of hope here. There's a little bit of a chance that perhaps the family name will continue. That is, until we come to the next couple verses. Look at verse 4. These two sons took Moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Taking Moabite wives was strictly forbidden by the Lord. wasn't supposed to happen. But you know something? There's a certain comfort level that this family and that you and I get when we exist in a sinful culture long enough. If you indulge in sin long enough, if you're around it for long enough, eventually it just becomes the norm. I want you to see something. Look back up in verse 1. This is important. Look back up in verse 1. When Elimelech went to Moab, he didn't intend to stay there very long. Look what it says. He says he went to Moab. He sojourned there. That word meant he was just going to be there for a little bit of time. Maybe a year, maybe two. Just get some food, go back home. He sojourned there. But then look down at verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. They're settling in. They're putting down stakes. Now look again at verse 4. They lived there for 10 years. This became home. They were used to it. Yeah, there's the pagan practices, all that goes on around them. But you know, after 10 years, it just becomes the norm. So these boys felt very comfortable with their surroundings. They did what the Lord forbade, and that was they married Moabite women. But at least Naomi had her sons, At least there was a chance that she could have grandsons. But something's wrong. After ten years, there's no grandbabies running around the house. Something's wrong. Look at verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Ironically, Moab, which means the provider of seed, did not provide seed in the family of Elimelech. They all had died. This family is hovering now on the brink of extinction. What used to be a family of four has now shrunk down to one lady, and that survivor That one sole survivor is even even losing her identity. Look how the author describes her in verse 5. The woman was left with her sons. It's as though things are going downhill quickly. Naomi's life is becoming bitter. A widow's life is difficult. Had Naomi been living in Israel, they had some things in place where they would provide for widow ladies. They would give them food. Problem was, Naomi's not living in Israel. She's living in this pagan nation of Moab. So, Naomi has three options available to her. Here they are. Number one, she could return to her father's house. Problem. According to the text, Naomi's old enough, her Parents probably don't exist. They probably have already died. So that option isn't even an option for Naomi. She can't return to her father's house. Number two, she could remarry. Problem. She's too old to have kids. There's no date nights for a widow who can't have kids. You see? So that option doesn't work. Number three, she could turn to her children, particularly her sons, for support. That's obviously not an option. They're dead. So she's out of options. The only thing that can happen at this point, the only glimmer of any kind of existence and sustenance is going to have to come from God himself. God is going to have to show up in order to make this thing work. So Naomi has another choice to make. And even though we're not going to cover this verse... Uh, this week, I want you to at least look ahead so we find out what her decision is. Verse 6. She finally makes a, a great and noble decision. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and he had given them food. What starts off in the book of Ruth as a tragedy is getting ready to make a turn because God's grace is about to appear. God's judgment on sin is reliable because he guarantees it. This is what's going to happen. But what is even more consistent and what we're going to find out is that when a repentant person turns back to God, God's grace overwhelms them because he loves to restore wandering sinners. God's grace is about to appear in this picture. Now, I want you to hear something because this is important. God's providence is sometimes very hard. There are times when you and I disobey And the consequences of that disobedience is very hard. God had dealt bitterly with Naomi. In fact, she's going to say it later in this chapter. She says the words, The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Sometimes God's providence is hard. And it would be quick and easy for us to say, well, yeah, of course it's hard. Elimelech disobeyed. Naomi disobeyed. They got what they deserved. It's because the boys married foreign wives. Of course they got what they deserved. But listen, friends, even believers can face affliction. Even believers face trials. Psalm 34 verse 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Can we say beyond a shadow of a doubt that the reason Elimelech and his two sons died was directly attributable to their sin? Can we say that? They died because they sinned. No, we can't say that. We don't know that for sure. To suggest that tragedy strikes an individual's life directly due to sin is a horrible distortion of the truth. Nowhere in the Old Testament nor the New Testament does it promise that believers won't face tragedy in life. So if we immediately say, oh, you have a tragedy, it's because you sinned. That is an unfair parallel. But, suppose Naomi's calamity was owing to her family's disobedience. What if that was the case? That they died because of their disobedience? Then catch this. That makes this story doubly encouraging because it shows that God is willing and able to turn his judgments into joys. It shows us that when repentant sinners come back, God can take those mistakes of their past and he can use them for his glory. The main character in this story, the character of Ruth, eventually becomes the grandmother of the king david she eventually becomes the great 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 grandmother of our savior jesus christ so god can even take his judgments and he can turn them into joy so when you and i face the chastening hand of god the hard hand of god realize this it is never harsh It is only hard enough to make us turn away from our sin and back to the saving grace of our God. That's only how hard he's going to push to make us realize we need the Savior. We need our Lord. We need Jesus Christ. Elimelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab. Our Lord Jesus left the place of eternal blessing to come to a place of famine to be a blessing to you and I. Elimelech, excuse me, Naomi cried because her sons and her husband had been taken away from her. Our Savior Jesus Christ cried because all of our sin was given to him. Malon and Kilion took wives that were forbidden Jesus makes a bride out of people who were rebellious. This family took a very short-sighted view when they made their decision. Jesus took a long-range view when he made his decision to come to earth and to die for you and I. So friend, no matter where you are in life, if you have a past that's littered with bad decisions. Or if you today stand at a fork in the road and you have to make a decision, know this God is with you, God is there. And if you will repent of your past sin, if you will repent of making decisions that didn't include God, and you will call upon Him, God will forgive you. If you believe that Jesus died for those bad decisions on a cross and he rose again for you, then friend, God is there. And he'll take all of that stuff and he'll use it for his glory, for your good. If you will trust him, if you will follow him. I want to leave us this morning with this. Whenever you face a decision this afternoon or tomorrow, whatever it is, I want you to remember Elimelech. Okay? Here's your decision. I want you to remember Elimelech. Remember Elimelech when you're going for a job. Because if you're going for a job because it offers you double the salary, a big 401k, a big house, if that's what drives your decision, and you're not thinking about things like how would this affect my family time? How would this affect my service in, in the church? How would this affect my, my children if I take this job? If you're not thinking in those ways, then you're thinking like Elimelech. Remember Elimelech when you're thinking about a job. Remember Elimelech when you're choosing a spouse. Do you go after that young lady because she's a for looks because she's good looking she's smart she's funny or do you go after that young lady because her faith is strong because she trusts in the Lord if you're going after her just for her looks you're thinking like Elimelech remember Elimelech remember Elimelech when you're deciding the activities you're going to participate in this coming weekend Are you going to go into that pagan environment thinking like Elimelech? I'll just be there for a little bit. I'm just going to sojourn there. I won't be there very long. It won't be a problem. And yet you go into that weekend activity and you find that you're beginning to put down stakes. It's comfortable there. And you begin living like the pagans. Remember Elimelech. He had no intention for staying very long. And yet he made a tragic decision. Remember Elimelech when you're choosing a church. Are you going to go to that church that seemingly provides you those felt needs, makes you feel good, you leave there and all warm and fuzzy? or Are you going to go to that church that takes you to Christ? And that says, here's who you need. You need a relationship with the Lord. And they're teaching you how to be holy, how to be righteous, how to be Christ-like. And in the end, you do feel good, not because it's all warm and fuzzy, but because you know the joy of walking with your Lord. Remember Elimelech when you're choosing a church. Friend, God's grace is being extended to you just like it was extended to Naomi. And she did finally return. She did finally repent and make a decision. And what we'll find is the rest of the story carries out that this is exactly what God needed to do in Naomi's life to bring her back. And then he brings in Ruth. And then he brings in Boaz. And you get to the end of the story and you say, Wow! God, you're awesome. How you could take that kind of a mess and make this kind of a story, that's great. That is great. That's the grace that God's holding out to you. Whether it's your past or whether you face a decision now, God says, if you'll honor me, if you'll live in obedience to me, my grace will carry you along. And if you fail, I'm here to catch you when you come back. Let's pray. Father God, I am thankful that you are a faithful God. Your hand is never so hard on us that we can't stand. Your hand only pushes down hard enough to bring us back to repentance. Father, we would never say that every tragedy in our lives is attributable to sin, but we would say that every sin brings about your discipline. And so, Father, for those sins that we commit, we confess and we repent. We don't want to be under your hand of judgment. We would rather find ourselves in a place of blessing under your hand of grace. And yet it's your grace that brings your discipline. It's your grace that brings us back to you. And so, Father, this morning we say thank you. Help us to be like Naomi and turn back. Help us to be like Naomi and come to a place where we recognize that we can't do it on our own, that we need you. Help us to remember Elimelech when we make decisions. Help us to remember that every decision we face comes under your sovereign commands. So, Father, I pray that we would be a people of obedience. We'd be a people that would honor you. We'd be a people known You are our king. We trust you. We look to you this coming week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.